You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, late last month, the lights went out in a big way for power customers in Maui and on the island of Hawaii, just as Oahu shuttered its last coal plant and energy costs jumped. Those major events raised a question about reliable energy and renewable energy as our 2045 deadline for clean energy goals aren't that far off. Now, for the first time, Hawaiian Electric is calling for bids for firm renewable energy sources on Oahu and on Maui, things like biomass, geothermal, and hydrogen that we can count on to keep the lights on no matter the weather or time of day. But can solar and wind be considered firm power? The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pope takes a closer look. Hawaii's largest standalone utility battery project is one step closer to completion. We are looking at a mid-construction phase of the Kapolei Energy Storage Facility. This is the fun part of the construction because the Tesla Megapack 2s are being delivered to the island. Of the 158 Megapacks that we will have at the facility in the final completion stage, we've got 71 of these on site with 53 already being placed on the concrete pads and another two being placed by crane on the concrete pads today. That's Polly Shaw, Director of Policy and Communications for Plus Power, the company that's developing Kapolei Energy Storage, called KES, on Oahu. Shaw says that when the project is completed, it will be the largest storage facility in the state. It's also the largest battery storage that is performing, that will perform grid services at scale that we can think of in the world. This Kapolei Energy Storage Facility at scale will provide a great absorption of the noonday solar energy to be ready when the, when the evening peak comes on. Battery storage is an important piece of the energy puzzle because it adds stability to variable energy sources like wind and solar. Traditionally, those resources only provided energy when the wind was blowing or the sun was out. But facilities like Kapolei Energy Storage can capture extra energy say when the sun is brightest at noon, and bank it for later. Battery energy storage such as this that is standalone helps firm and shape intermittent renewable energy, much like having electric vehicle charging infrastructure in place before electric vehicles come in. Lithium battery storage has advanced quite considerably in the last 10 years and will continue to do so with other types of chemistries or other types of storage technologies coming onto the grid as they become more commercially proven over the next 10 years. So this is the precursor of lots of different types of storage on the grid. In the past, renewable energy has fallen into two camps. Intermittent, sources like solar and wind that are weather dependent and energy limited, and firm, sources that can generate power 24-7 whenever needed. H-Power on Oahu is considered a firm renewable according to Hawaii state statutes, as would a biomass, biodiesel, or geothermal plant. But storage technology like KES is making those definitions more complicated. Battery plus solar is a pretty reliable resource. If you just buy a battery, well, it's not a renewable at all, but if you're going to feed solar into it, then solar plus batteries, is that a firm renewable? That's Matthias Fripp. He's an associate professor of electrical engineering at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He also serves on the technical advisory board for Hawaiian Electric's integrated grid planning process. Fripp pushes back against any hard line in the sand between what is and isn't a firm renewable. Well, I would say that there's not a clear definition. So I would say anytime someone comes to you using that kind of terminology, firm renewable, you need to probe a little more deeply and ask what, how are they defining it and why are they defining it that way. Hawaiian Electric maintains that solar and wind paired with battery storage do not meet their definition of firm power. This year, HECO put out a call for bids for 500 to 700 megawatts of new renewable firm generation, and that's just for Oahu. Rebecca Dehuff Matsushima is the vice president of resource procurement at Hawaiian Electric. Storage is typically limited to about four hours. That's what we seek in our RFPs. Long duration storage, things that would last days or weeks on end, it's very expensive and still in its infancy and technology development. And so there is still that need for firm generation that's available 24-7. Fripp agrees there's a role for this kind of firm power, but thinks we should be careful not to overestimate what we need. Even though the main advantage of firm power is that it can be used 24-7, 
Fripp says it would be incredibly expensive to actually use a new renewable firm generation plant all of the time. I don't even want to think how expensive that would make power. It would be bad. But again, if you're only using it 3 to 5% of the year, it's not going to have a big effect on bills. If you use my definition of what they need, which is something you can turn on when you need to, but aren't going to run all the time, then it looks to me like we need something like 150 megawatts of that. And Hawaiian Electric is working on their long-term plan, and I'm on this technical advisory panel for that. And I'd say it's safe to say they haven't proven to anyone yet that they actually need something like 500 to 700 megawatts of new controllable, let alone run all the time generation. Unlike our current fossil fuel plants, Dehuf Matsushima says HECO doesn't plan on using new firm renewable plants around the clock. Traditional firm generators, hard to turn down, have a lot of high minimum runs sometimes. They're more inflexible. What we're looking for is flexible firm renewable generation that we can turn up and down, that we can turn off when it's not needed, but is there when it is needed so that we can ensure that we're able to provide safe, resilient, reliable power for the island. Solar and wind will still be out in front, says Dehuf Matsushima. But firm generation will be able to pick up the slack. But some say we need to consider if that role can be filled by battery storage technology instead. Colin Yost is chief operating officer at Revolucin, a locally owned and operated solar plus battery installation company that specializes in rooftop solar. If you think about the energy resources as a, as a pie, some of those pieces of the pie will be sources like geothermal and probably biomass and other sources that in theory are not weather limited. But battery technology is, is already very functional and it's improving and changing rapidly. And battery technology can store power from any source, including sources that are affected by the weather, like wind and solar. And they can turn what we normally call intermittent energy into firm energy. It's simply a question of how you incorporate those batteries into the grid. The Kapolei Energy Storage Facility can capture solar energy during the day for use in the early hours of the night. Yost asks, why should it stop there? You know, right now we don't think of batteries as operating 24-7. They are usually thought of as like a four-hour battery or some other amount of storage that's guaranteed. But that changes when you connect thousands of batteries together into a network. And we we now are calling this grid supply services as kind of a broad term. And when you connect thousands of batteries into a network, some portion of that power can always be available 24-7. So it's really a question of scale and a question of technology and how you integrate those resources into the larger grid. And that's where more discussion, I think, is needed. Some imagination is needed in terms of how we're really going to make it work. Dehav Matsushima says storage just isn't there yet. If something were to go really wrong, like a natural disaster, traditional firm generation facilities could fare better and provide power sooner. And bringing on new firm renewable power addresses other concerns, like limits on how much land we have for new solar and wind farms. But Dehav Matsushima says that solar plus storage still has an important role to play in our energy strategy. Being able to use those facilities, solar plus storage or any other type of intermittent plus storage facility, allows us to lessen the amount of firm generation that we have to use. And that's why even though we're going out and we're seeking new firm generation that's renewable, we are going to be retiring more fossil fuel generation. So the net will still be a loss of firm generation on the system. We're going to have less firm generation after these procurements on the system than we do today because we'll be retiring retiring more megawatts of fossil fuel generation than we're replacing of firm renewable generation. And that we're able to do that because we can utilize solar plus storage to replace some, but not all of that capacity. Firm versus intermittent isn't just semantics. These definitions are important because they shape what our grid will fundamentally look like as we try to meet our clean energy goals. Dehav Matsushima says it can be a bit of a high wire act trying to meet the needs of the future with the technologies of today. It's really an ever evolving process. And I think a lot of people, when they think of that 2045 goal of 100% renewable energy, like we're gonna just be done. Like we're just gonna have all these systems on place and like that's the end of 
of the goal, but really it will be constant because facilities that we're putting into place today with 20-year contracts will be coming up to their end of their term in 2045. And those are either going to have to be renegotiated and are they're going to have to be replaced. And you know, just like today, our old units have to be replaced. So this will be an ever-evolving journey, just like any power system is. It's just that we're moving from what was traditionally an ever-evolving journey of fossil fuel to new forms of renewable technology. And I, I'm very hopeful that we have very great minds working on, on new technologies and that there will be new, better technologies in the future. But right now, we also have to plan for what is available. That was the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote with a look at what power sources will make Hawaii's future grid. Support for HPR comes from Chamber Music Hawaii, celebrating 40 years. The Tresemble performs the season opener featuring Skygate by Lelehua Lanzalotti and Nonetto by Nino Rota, September 24th and 25th. Tickets at chambermusichawaii.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn about a recent bill signed into law by President Biden called the Inflation Reduction Act. We'll find out from a clean energy perspective how the Inflation Reduction Act will help everyday citizens like us save money. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. This week, Governor David Ige appointed eight people to the Mauna Kea Stewardship and Oversight Authority. It's a new board charged with managing the mountain summit lands. The state Senate is considering the nominees, and while there is no legal requirement of Hawaiian ancestry for members of this authority, a majority of the candidates put forward by the governor are Native Hawaiian. HPR reporter Ka'uve Hirishi is here to talk about what's next. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, uh, the list is out, as folks have heard. The new Mauna Kea Stewardship and Oversight Authority eight names, and six of the eight are Native Hawaiian, which makes up the voting majority for this 11-member board. So these eight nominees are subject to confirmation by the state Senate, of course, and uh, if confirmed, they'll join three ex-official voting members representing the State Department of Land and Natural Resources, a University of Hawaii, and Hawaii County. Uh, This new stewardship model, as you mentioned, was sort of prompted in part by concerns over mismanagement of Mauna Kea, as well as a lack of of input by Native Hawaiians in decision-making. So that really made this this list with a majority of Native Hawaiians on it that kind of stand out uh, when it came out. UH Manoa professor Kamana Michaelani Beamer, a former member of the Commission on Water Resource Management, was tapped uh, to uh, nominated to this board for his uh, land and resource management skills. You know, I, I really hope that it can be an entity that really exercises a new model for working with community and stewarding Aina and, you know, bridging across multiple important sectors of our economy. And so I think it's just a great opportunity. You know, we have a chance again to uplift our our community's incredible Ike about the place and and stewardship, you know, really incorporate our Ike Kupuna and um, acknowledge, you know, the, in many ways, you know, the years in which Kanaka haven't been at the decision-making table for our most precious resource. So other names on that list, uh, just uh, a few here. The education seat on the authority was filled by uh, Kalehua Krug, principal of Kawaihono Kana'awao Public Charter School out in Waianae. Alana Kilamanguel, who folks might remember, uh, was one of the organizers of protests up on Mauna Kea against TMT, uh, was chosen for his expertise in Hawaiian traditional and customary practices. Waimea Native and Polynesian Voyaging Society member Pomai Bertelman 
was selected to serve on the authority's sole seat for a lineal descendant of a Hawaiian practitioner uh, associated with Mauna Kea. And then the other two Hawaiian candidates were chosen from shortlists provided by the legislature. Retired UH Hilo professor Noi Noi Wong Wilson was pulled from the House's list. And Analeo TV executive and hospitality industry vet Paul Horner from the Senate's list. And rounding out that list uh, are John Komeji, former Hawaiian telecom executive and general counsel now for Kamehameha Schools, who's going to bring his business and finance background to the authority. And last but not least, uh, Rich Matsuda, uh, engineer and longtime technical manager at WM Keck Observatory on Mauna Kea. He's the sole voice uh, on this authority for astronomy. For astronomy, the future land authorization is a big issue for us. Having the authority get stood up and to become functional as soon as possible is really important to us and urgent. Our current lease goes until 2033, and so we need to figure out the path well in advance of that. So this five-year transition for the authority we would like it to go smoothly, and, and the observatories plan to uh, work as, you know, cooperatively and collaboratively with the new authority to make that happen. So we're still uh, awaiting a word from the governor on whether or not he'll order a special session uh, for uh, these nominees to be uh, confirmed by the state Senate anytime soon. If not, we'll see a confirmation hearings held uh, during the regular session come January. Yeah, and so, you know, this issue obviously is something that's not going to get resolved uh, right away. I know, you know, recently we had the head of uh, Region 9 from uh, the Environmental Protection Agency mm. in town. She was on the Big Island. She made her the first visit to Mauna Kea, oh, which wow. I think was a, a good sign, you know, that the environmental uh, uh, watch or the protectors are are, are are looking out, you know, for those environmental interests as well. So it's a good thing. Right. And, and the, there are a lot of issues in speaking to everyone uh, that I've been able to who's been nominated. You know, they realize this is such a big task and it's going to take a lot of discussion and sort of creative solutions. But it's really I think it's too early right now to, to uh, tell whether or not this will be the board. The Senate confirmation process, which is going to involve um, possibly multiple committee hearings and public input and testimony and a final sign-off by the Senate, I think that process will probably uh, take a while. Yeah, and let's just hope there aren't any snafus along <laughs> the way, right? I mean, gosh, we've just uh, this has been a long, drawn-out process. You want to we want to get it right this time. And, exactly. Uh, and then if confirmed it's supposed to this authority is supposed to uh, begin starting or become effective uh, in uh, July of next year. All right. Well, thank you so much. We have been talking with HBR reporter Kuvehi Hirishi. You can check out her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. <music> tune to the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Hawaii's former First Lady Jean Ariyoshi shares her memories of Queen Elizabeth's visit to our islands coming up later in the show. Uh, that got us wondering, how many trips did she make to the Aloha State? Well, the first two were in February and March 1963 during refueling stops on her way to Fiji, Tonga, New Zealand, and Australia. Upon her arrival, she was greeted by then-Governor John Burns and 4,500 people who had uh, gathered to wave at British royalty. Her next visits were in March and May 1970, when she arrived for two brief stopovers, 
only spending about 45 minutes on the ground. She was accompanied by Prince Philip and their 19-year-old daughter, Princess Anne. The Queen would visit us again in 1975, this time spending two days on Oahu. During that visit, she dined with then-Governor George Ariyoshi and his family at Washington Place. Now, this was long before ultra-luxury resorts like the Ritz-Carlton and Four Seasons came to Hawaii. So what we want to know for today's backyard quiz is... Where did the Queen stay during her 1975 trip to Oahu? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from Hawaii Public Radio. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. another surprising twist in a scandal surrounding the Honolulu prosecutor's office and allegations of trumped-up charges. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So yeah, our story today is uh, new indictments uh, in the uh, bribery case involving the prosecutor's another, office. Another shoe has dropped, <laughs> you might say. And this is uh, Christina Jedra's story, who's uh, taking a couple of well-deserved days off. Uh, but the story which broke yesterday, which she broke, it involves Sherry Jean Tanaka. And Tanaka is the attorney for Mitsunaga and Associates, whose CEO, you just may have heard, <laughs> is facing federal charges. That's Dennis Mitsunaga. And uh, this particular person, Sherry Jean Tanaka, was arrested actually in California yesterday. And she's been charged uh, in that bribery case, uh, or alleged bribery case, we should say, uh, involving. Uh, former Honolulu prosecutor Keith Kaneshiro, a big, big story which has been in the news and continues to evolve. And uh, this case involves uh, uh, allegations that uh, one of the Mitsunaga employees, uh, Laurel Mao, um, you know, was uh, uh, a prosecuted um, in a kind of a pay-for-play well, basically retaliated against at 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 the at uh, according to the prosecution at the discretion or the desire rather of Mitsunaga, what the prosecutors are saying specifically, and we should stress these are federal prosecutors, as many of these cases have been, uh, accused Mitsunaga and his accomplices of of actually donating more than forty five thousand dollars into the campaign coffers of Keith Kaneshiro. Of course, the city prosecutor is is an elected office, not an appointed one. Why? Because they wanted Kaneshiro to pursue um, bogus prosecution of, of Laurel Mao, who uh, was a former employee of uh, Dennis Matsunaga's company. Uh, we should say that the first five defendants uh, in that conspiracy case have pleaded not guilty. We're not sure uh, what the stance is on Tanaka. We're, we're not even sure whether she has an attorney, uh, but we'll probably learn more details. We do know that a trial has been set before uh, Judge Seabright in March. And this is really highly unusual to have a lawyer indicted in this case. Well, this is something that Christina talked about with, with a former federal prosecutor, public defender, rather. He said, yeah, this, this doesn't happen very often. I mean, this is a defense attorney in a conspiracy case. If you're going to do this, you're going to need approval from the Department of Justice. Well, we don't know whether that happened, but we'll find out. This is Alex Silbert I'm talking about. And, of course, there is an attorney-client privilege involved. We should say Tanaka is the attorney for Mitsunaga and Associates, not the attorney in the bribery case representing Mitsunaga or any of the other people. So we just don't know too much more about it. Um, but I should share with this that Christina reported the indictment, which was unsealed yesterday, this new indictment. It alleges that Tanaka met with Kaneshiro as early as October 2012, 10 years ago, uh, to persuade him to go down this prosecution path, and that she herself at that very same time, what a coincidence, donated $250 uh, to Kaneshiro. Uh, that comes at the same time a lot of these other donations were made as well. The indictment also chronicles a series of emails uh, and phone calls 
uh, logging what appears to be, at least from the justices, Justice Department's point of view, uh, a pretty clear path that, that she was involved trying to persuade Kaneshiro. We'll find out. We don't know what Tanaka herself uh, has to say about this. Uh, there's no comment from her in this story. Well, and from what I understand, that she's licensed as an attorney both in California and mm. here uh, in Hawaii, in the islands. And she's from here. Right, and I, I yes, yeah, she is. And she, I think she actually clerked for Steve Alm back when, back when he was a judge. And, and uh, you know, it's a small legal community size, but everybody knows mm-hmm. everybody here. And uh, we just don't know anything more. But, um, you know, as you know, as we all know, this initially stemmed from the Kealoha case, right? Catherine Kealoha worked with Keith Kaneshiro. I'm not going to go down that path this morning. Mm-hmm. We need not recap that. But it just makes you wonder what more is coming forth uh, in this latest uh, set of legal proceedings. Right. And we had some wild charges in that one. And, uh, you know, they had convictions. So we'll see how this plays out. Okay. Thanks, Catherine. Okay. Thank you so much, Chad. That was uh, Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, Check out Christina Jedra's story. Visit org. Support for HPR comes from Beach Tree Restaurant, located oceanfront at Four Seasons Resort, Hualalai, serving lunch and dinner. Chef Giuliano features fresh seafood and daily handcrafted pastas and pizzas with nightly live acoustic entertainment. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Nepo, author of Surviving Storms. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about finding the strength to meet adversity. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Created with many hands from Hawaii's community, the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law Awakening explores the human connection to nature. Opens September 17th. not surprising that the death of one of the longest reigning monarchs would trigger the conversation about the need for such a figurehead in these modern times. That's the focus of The Long View today. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, is in studio with us. Good morning. Good morning. So, how do we look at this monarchy? Well, there's many ways that people are looking at it as being newsworthy, as being celebrity, as being a source of gossip. All of which are probably true, but the uh, writer Andrew Sullivan, who's one really smart guy and actually grew up in England but has lived in the United States for a long time, has a discussion of it that really helps us understand because he shows what she was as a monarch and how that reflects certain kind of values that he says, and I actually agree, are now missing from America. And um, the main one he essentially says is self-restraint. If you want to think of two things that he's trying to get at, and, and uh, it's that it's, she's, she signifies self-restraint and that, in effect, the monarchy is an ancient, he calls it, primordial institution in a, that really logically doesn't fit into a democratic society but it's worked in England because it's a way to establish a kind of attachment to a broader sense of nationhood and a connection to others and to history, which he says that people need. If you don't get it that way, you're going to get it from somewhere else, like a celebrity. So that's the, that's the basic sort of thing. So he's got one, re, one short section in there. Well, there are two interesting sections, one of which he opens up by contrasting her to Donald Trump, because he was thinking about this at the same time when Trump's values are totally different in terms of um, maintaining certain kind of traditions and so on. But he, this is what he's really driving at. He says that um, 
there is a staggering lack of self-restraint in the United States. People are so concerned about expressing themselves, thinking about their own selves, thinking along those lines, that uh, we've lost the attachment that we should have with others. You know, that, that there is that attachment, the notion that you are part of something bigger, a group has sort of disappeared. Yeah, not just me, me, me. Not that, not that just me, me, me. Now, the interesting thing is, first of all, I hate to use the labels because it affects people in certain ways that aren't always useful. Sullivan is taking here what is a kind of traditional conservative position. But believe me, if you know anything about Sullivan, and you can look it up in Wikipedia. He's not a traditional conservative at all. The more important thing is those kinds of values that are out there are values that a whole lot of folks, including folks identified with left of center, are talking about. The need to be part of a bigger community. The need not to be so selfish. The need not to be so concerned with venting your anger but something more productive. Well, you know, critics, you know, uh, point to Trump and say, well, he's narcissistic. And, well, and yeah. uh, that's right. And he certainly is. He certainly is narcissistic. And, and Sullivan has no trouble with that. But he just says, Sullivan says, there's just a whole lot of narcissism around, a whole lot of inability to connect with others. It's in some ways related to, I don't know if you remember, I did the piece here, I think, on, on Jonathan Haidt talking about how social media makes you stupid. Uh, Haidt is a social psychologist who's a, uh, done some really interesting work around this. You learn, you dislearn the ability to, to relate to others. So to sum up the argument. What Sullivan is saying is that Queen Elizabeth reflected these kind of broader issues. She was an icon, not an idol. An icon is something that is attached to the past, that relates you to the past in a kind of uh, way that's, that's human. An idol is a celebrity. Um, and that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with being an idol. But that's not, he's not talking about idolatry here. He says, he says Diana was, um, you know, Celeb was more of a celebrity. Right. That's right. So I guess what, what I'm finally saying is what impressed me about this piece is that it's a serious discussion about the monarchy in ways that reflect on us as Americans and it's a way to think about it. You, you know, there's going to be a lot of people, I think, who will disagree to say, you know, when you say venting, what we mean is assertiveness. And the way you get into the world now is to express your identity, to focus on your identity, to focus on how important that is. That's not my view. But the important thing is it's a lot of other people's views. And it, but this helps you engage in the conversation. I would not want to engage from the other side on Sullivan because he's too smart for me. But... Uh, but that, I think, is the essence of why you, why you should read it. And you can read it on his blog. You'll see a, a site there. And then, you know, I, I know that, uh, uh, you know, just in the past few days, there's been lots of talk about how uh, it was good for, for Britain to have the queen because, you know, she rose above some of the petty politics yes. that you see. She He's got an interesting statement that puts it all in, in a kind of perspective. From the day she became queen, her job was not to make trouble. Her job was to restrain herself to keep out of all kinds of things. Now, that's not cowardice. It's discretion. It's the discretion that you need to understand your role, which is to represent something called a nation, but to keep your nose out of everyday politics, which should be reflected, if it's a constitutional monarchy, which should be reflected by the regular political process that involved people choosing people. That's the difference between Queen Elizabeth, let's say, and Boris Johnson. Both, the, I mean, Boris Johnson is a little bit on the clownish side, but he was certainly not interested in restraint. But that wasn't his job, really. Her job was to, was to do that. And so if you've ever watched her in any kind of setting, and I know your next, your, your next segment is going to be about that, it's very much along those kinds of lines. Yeah, and you know, I guess when you think too of her longevity, you know, and you think of the many decades that she served, and the, and she's had the the, the many prime ministers. I oh know, yeah, <laughs> uh, that she's worked with many prime ministers. What fourteen? Mm, I think. Like that, and yeah. her family is not, you know, her family, her children, and to some extent her grandchildren, 
have not at all behaved the way she behaves, partly because they're not a queen and partly because they're not Elizabeth. Now, that's not a knock on them, but as Sullivan points out, this is something that's extraordinarily hard to do, even if you are Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, well, I think there's just that respect for the office and the long-standing traditions as we're we're seeing with all the media coverage, yes. you know, uh, because that's the way it's been done yes. in that country. Yes, and I'll miss the uh, brightly colored clothing that she wore yes. with the matching hat. You could always identify her that way because no one else dressed that way. I mean that in a good way. And we'll have to see what King Charles does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, yeah. That's not a, I don't care how many years you prepare for that job, which <laughs> arguably is uh, his whole life, and he's in his 70s now. That's, that's a hard job, and it's going to be very hard to follow because he's not representing himself. He's representing not even just the family, but there's this sort of important but very diffuse connection to a sense of nationhood at a time when it's very hard to have a kind of sense of nationhood that's going to be very, very hard to uphold. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how he sh- uh, reshapes the monarchy. I know he's talked about a more uh, streamlined... Um, well, it's also also how the monarchy will reshape him, uh, and, and we'll see. Yeah, He right. looks like he could be king. Right? Yes. He's, uh, he has that kind of restrained style, at least publicly. Yeah, so, um, well, we'll have to um, stay watching uh, yes. the, the royals, as they, as they say. <laughs> that's, that's not what I say. That's a British term. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the royals. The yeah. royals. All right. Well, thank you so much. You're Mike. welcome. Take care. We have been talking with Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and our contributing editor with his segment, The Long View. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio and Move Over Plover. There's a new shorebird in town, thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. We've got the song of the ulili for you. These indigenous birds recently returned back to the islands after their mating season. In today's Mono Minute, University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart tells us how to keep an eye out for the ulili. The ulili, or wandering tattler, is a sandpiper that is indigenous to Hawaii, meaning that they're naturally found here as well as other parts of the world. They're about 10 inches tall, mostly gray, with long yellow legs and a white stripe in front of their eye. Like other sandpipers, they use their long bill to probe in sand and rocky crevices for worms, crustaceans, and mollusks and they can often be identified from a distance by the way they bob their tail up and down while they hunt for food. You can often find ulili foraging alone along shorelines and streams in Hawaii from late summer through spring, but by May, most of them begin their long migration across the Pacific to Alaska, where they breed along mountain streams. They're a bit unusual for sandpipers in that their babies are good swimmers. Like many Hawaiian birds, the name ulili sounds like their call. In Hawaiian culture, the ulili is one of the sacred messengers and scouts of the gods. Their English name, wandering tattler, refers to their alarm calls to warn other birds when hunters or predators are nearby. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff.
For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you where Queen Elizabeth II stayed when she visited Hawaii in 1975. The Queen made two brief stopovers at Honolulu's airport in 63 and again in uh, 1970, but it was in 1975 that she and her husband, Prince Philip, spent two days on Oahu. They were on their way to visit Hong Kong and Japan. During their time here, they dined with then-Governor George Ariyoshi, his wife Jean, and their children at Washington Place. So where does royalty stay when in Hawaii? Well, this was long before ultra-luxury uh, resorts like the Ritz-Carlton and Four Seasons came to our shores. So the queen and her husband stayed at what was then the Kahala Hilton and is now known as the Kahala Hotel and Resort. The upscale hotel opened in 1964 and has been the destination for visiting royalty and heads of state. Every U.S. president since Lyndon B. Johnson has stayed there when visiting you know, you should check out the uh, Hall of Fame in the hotel for all the pictures with the VIPs. And congrats today. Our winner is Walter Rodby from Honolulu. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea you'd like to share, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Stick around. Former Hawaii First Lady Gina Ryoshi shares her memories of the Queen's 1975 trip to Hawaii. Queen Elizabeth will lie in state at Westminster Hall leading up to her funeral service next week. One of the many people watching the media coverage is former First Lady Jean Ariyoshi. She hosted the monarch on one of her many trips to the islands. We sat down with her at her Nu'uanu Valley home, tucked up in the tree line ridge to recall those memories from long ago. She says the family had only just moved into Washington Place four months earlier. Just a few months there, my protocol officer, Francis Lum, came and he said, Oh, Mrs. Ariyoshi, your first guest will be the Queen of England. And, you know, I, I was so elated because, I mean, it's, it was just so astounding for me, a little girl from Wahewa, when I have a dinner for the Queen, you know. So I said, Okay. So I, I kind of uh, was just happy because I have this I had this opportunity and then I said well when is she coming he said in four days I said what I mean it turned to panic you know and so the first thing I said well I'm going to need help and so I called my staff together and I told the staff and you know the staff was always family with with us you know they were family and I told the gal gals if we can do this we can do anything believe me <laughs> and so we proceeded I called uh, George Raphael he was manager of Hawaiian region at that time and so he was a friend of mine and I said George could you give me help he said certainly so he brought his chef over so three days for two hours every day we had this meeting with the chef and George and so we planned on the menu, what we're going to serve. Of course, a lot of Hawaiian fruits and vegetables, if possible. And then the main dish was a, um, a lobster from Napili. You know, that was, and she really enjoyed that. Of course, then I had to check on all of the silverware and the stemware. We had absolutely no stemware. So I borrowed everything from, you know, the glasses from the Hawaiian Regent, and then I looked at the place, their beautiful Noritake place, which they still use today, with the state seal, and so, but there weren't enough dishes, you know, for the group. So George said, well, we'll just have to wash the dishes in between and cool them with ice. I said, oh, okay, we'll do that. And then the silverware was, uh, I used a very historical silverware, which we had. It was a gift to Kamehameha IV from Emperor Napoleon III. So that was all set. And then we had to, of course, there was no wine, hardly anything there. And so we stocked up the wine, the cellar for, I mean, every cocktail you could think of, you know. So when she arrived, we had Mr. Cockett and his serenaders 
from Kauai and they serenaded. And Colleen Ayu was then Miss Hawaii. She did a hula. And so, but anyway, when the queen arrived, I mean, I mean, it was such a magical moment for me, you know, to be able to meet someone like this. And I looked at her and she was, there was a certain aura about people like that and uh, kind of draws you in into their, their little world, you know. But she was very, very, I thought, a very, um, she was actually a very, it was a simple gown with open neck and the print was with purple flowers. Simplicity, but it was elegant. She was very warm, easy to talk to, you know. And when the protocol officer had to uh, review us and tell us all the you know rules, my kids were kind of scared because I had asked that my children and Grandma Ariyoshi join us besides the VIPs. And the protocol officer said no. But later I found out that the queen said yes. So they joined us for dinner with the VIPs. And the kids were kind of scared. <laughs> of course, they were all teenagers, you know. And, and because they, you know, protocol, they're pretty strict and do this, do that and that. So my, I told my kids, you know, just be yourself, be natural, you know, that's, the all, that's all you can do. So, but they did enjoy her. They found her very, as I did, very motherly, very easy to talk to. She was very mm, warm but dignified, you know. And so she talked about her her horses and and she talked about her children. So my kids, my family really enjoyed the dinner too. I recall reading an article and the governor had mentioned, oh, you know, yeah, we talked about our families, our children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you see the coverage today and you know how important her family is to her. You know, and, and I recently had the opportunity to tour Washington Place mm -hmm. uh, as it reopened for tours to see the upstairs exhibit space. And my favorite thing in the whole tour were really the pictures mm -hmm. of the families, yeah. the first families. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, just yeah. stayed with me. And, and so, you know, you can see that, Bill, your time with your family in Washington yeah. Place, hosting which the Queen. Was, I know, which was 12 years when we, the longest, I think, living at Washington Place. But Prince Philip was very Prince Philip, and of course we've I've, we've had experiences with uh, Prince Charles now, who's now the king. Uh, I had a, also about Princess Diana, so those all those stories came back, you know, when the Queen passed, and she really was a strong family person. She. It must have been, I've, I've been following the series about her and I didn't know a lot of stuff that was going on in her life at that time and with all the people that I had met in her family, what was happening to them. And so I thought, well, it was, it was, must have been so difficult for her. But she is a very, very strong, strong woman, very um, humble, very kind, very soft-spoken, but there is a big strength behind all of that. You know, I, you can probably appreciate, though, you know, the being a public person and yet a very private person, you know, and, and having to straddle those two worlds. So as you watch the coverage now, mm -hmm. I guess what comes to your mind? What comes to my mind, of course, is that first dinner and all that I experienced because, as I recall, when she walked in and how I felt. And you know, that night really, it, it was a night to remember. I'll never forget it because I decided to put a coat of red nail polish over my nails again. And this is one hour before the queen was to arrive. And I had a white gown uh, with a big purple sash that Nolly Brooks had done. And so, I shook the bottle and the bottle went all over my white gown. I, 
I, I nearly fainted. I mean, then George started to rub it off. I said, oh, George, you can't take that red polish off the white gown. <laughs> really? So I just slipped off everything. And fortunately, I had another white gown. And this was a coat, uh, a sleeveless coat, long coat in silk embroidery. The embroidery was beautiful. It was done by Andre Kim, a very famous designer in Korea. And so I just slipped it on, and that was what you see in those pictures. <laughs> but people don't know the story yeah. behind that. No, no, no. <laughs> and then not only that, so I told you we were prepared for every cocktail you could think of, and we were. But when she arrived, I said, oh, Your Majesty, what would you like to drink for a cocktail? And she said, well, um, a martini. And I said, oh, my goodness. <gasps> I don't remember seeing martini glasses in my cupboard. So I quickly went in the pack, I checked, and would you believe it, I found a one dirty old martini glass in the cupboard. So I quickly washed it, you know, and then <laughs> served the queen her martini. But anyway, that was kind of nerve-wracking, but the, but the dinner went really well, and Prince Philip was so charming. I told him all about Hawaiian history and about the queen and everything. So would you believe it? But he said, well, you know, you were so kind to tell me all of that history. And I wish that I'm going to invite you to walk to, um, to their palace, Buckingham Palace. Please visit me. And I hope that I can tell you as much British history as you did, you know. So so, of course, I was elated, but, but anyway, at the end of the evening, this is the end of my story, at the end of the evening, we were lying down, and, you know, I was pooped, I was exhausted, but I said, George, you know, Prince Philip invited me to Buckingham Palace, so he said, hmm. how come you were invited and I wasn't, and so we laughed and fell asleep. Uh, the Arioshis would later visit the Queen and Prince Philip at Buckingham Palace and tour the country. And mahalo to First Lady Jean Arioshi for sharing her memories of her first state dinner at Washington Place with the royal family. It was an event she uh, got with only four days' notice when the Queen's trip to Guam was canceled because of concerns over the Vietnam War. The Arioshis went on to host many other dignitaries over the next 12 years, including the Emperor of Japan. Well, we're out of time now, but up tomorrow, we take a moment to celebrate the generosity of donors who hope to make meaningful change in our community. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find all of our shows archived online to listen back. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. 